Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So welcome to the last session, which is Politics on the Move. My name is Marianne Seacart. I'm one of these dead tree journalists who would love to be able to do what Melanie Phillips is doing. Uh, But here I'm actually here to talk about politics and mobile phones and iPads and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm a journalist and broadcaster and also chair of uh, the independent think tank, the Social Market Foundation. Now, how this is going to work is that, first of all, Gideon Skinner from Ipsos Mori is going to stand here and tell you a little bit about politics and digital media. And we're then going to have a great discussion, a lot of good guests here, who I will introduce after Gideon. Gideon is research director at the Ipsos Mori Social Research Institute, where he's worked since 1997. Uh, He's head of political research and has been involved in coverage and analysis of every general election since 1997. Gideon. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me to speak to you all today. I'm going to cover three issues very, very rapidly, so I'm going to race through, but you can always kind of contact me afterwards if you're interested in anything that I've got to say. Um, uh, I'm going to briefly talk a bit about the context um, and the growth in social media and and the internet and give a few examples of how this is changing discussions about politics and and ways of engaging people and then just finish off with a few uh, examples of of maybe some, some pitfalls that we need to be aware of. Uh, I was told to start with some juicy stats. Hopefully, these will be juicy enough for you when they come. Um, these are just to kind of talk about the ways in which uh, social media is becoming more and more entwined in our lives. So, um, if, if the computer does get set to external control, you'll be able to see some of these things. But um, there are in very interesting statistics about the sort of the impact that it's having, such as uh, seven in ten smartphone users. Uh, say they would rather give up alcohol than their smartphone. Three in ten say they would rather give up sex. Um, so I don't know if that says something about the sex or the, or the smartphone. Um, eight in ten of us uh, who have a smartphone take it, take it to bed. Um, around about half of teenage smartphone users say they take it into the loo with them. So it may well be true that this is a form of online engagement that reaches parts other tools uh, do not reach. Um, and even kind of quite terrifying, speaking as a... Uh, father of a, a, a four-year-old and a six-month-old is that one study even showed that sort of for very young children, more of them uh, know how to work a smartphone uh, than can tie their own shoelaces. Excellent. Uh, so you know, that's quite just some fun stuff, but it's backed up with some of the other research that we do. I mean, obviously everyone knows about the growth of, of, of internet, but what's interesting if we look over the last uh, couple of years is how much of that growth has been driven uh, by growth in smartphones, so uh, I'm not sure if you can quite see those figures, but the proportion with access of broadband at home over the last year has been relatively equal at around about three in four, um, but we can see a kind of growth in those with a smartphone up from 39 to 48%, and the proportion of people visiting social networking sites on their phone has also gone up 10 points, so it's, you know, there's obvious, and I'm sure there's been lots of discussion about that today, we're, kind of, we're all aware of the potential out there and what this means for us. So let's think about what that might mean for kind of discussions about politics and giving us a new way to talk about politics. And I want to give you a couple of examples about this. Um, so we tried to 
trawl, just for this conference, we trawled all the discussion around politics associated with, we chose David Cameron, um, on Twitter, on websites and other places, just to see what the sort of the conversations were over the last few months. And I think it's kind of quite interesting if we go through uh, some of this. And you can see the big topics that are coming up. So in January, for example, you can see the discussion around the in-out referendum being talked about on, uh, on the web. Uh, in February, you know, his visit to India and the Golden Temple and Amritsar. Uh, March, Leveson, um, Eastleigh, bedroom tax being big issues talked about on the web. Uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, passing away in April because I completely dominated the conversation. But again, that's kind of quite a little interesting example of how one tweet can have an impact and come up. Sort of almost 11,000 retreats um, of talking about being prepared for nuclear attacks from winter, but actually, um, Dave Matey says we weren't even prepared for snow uh, at winter. Uh, and then in May, after the elections, we can sort of see the kind of the, the growth in, in UKIP and the, and the concerns about UKIP and, and so on. So that's all quite interesting, this sort of new discussion around politics. When you look at it in a bit more detail, there's other things it tells us. So, for example, it's very spiky. It's really reacting to events, and then it's from quite a low base, and then you suddenly see a huge spike. It's quite concentrated in places like London and so on. So those are things perhaps we can think about when we come to the, to the pitfalls. But it's, it's not just about giving us new space to talk about politics. It's, it's about giving us some new tools to think about engaging with people, and particularly for, for young people, um, kind of you know, summed up uh, if that was working. Um, I, there's a very nice quote there. Uh, about how people can't, young people can't even believe how we managed to speak to each other um, back in the day. They say, my God, uh, what did you do? Did you kind of, I'd rather give up a kidney than give up my, my smartphone. You know, we, uh, what, how did you speak to each other? I mean, did you actually have to go and use bikes to go and visit each other or something uh, equally godforsaken? So we carried out an experiment to try to, to try to see if this is a new way of engaging with young people. Is it a way that we can kind of get them involved in, in politics? We developed an app which they could download onto their mobile phone, um, which allowed them to talk to us, to upload photos. And we talked to 67 people um, over a week um, as an example of what it looked like. And, and over the week, and we were asking them questions about their local area, their hopes, their aspirations, and so on. Um, we got a thousand responses of various different types, texts, photos, and things like that. And we got a really kind of good response from people uh, as well. There's something going wrong here because you can't see any of it. Oh, there you go. Uh, just as an example of what it looked like. And they really, really enjoyed doing it as well. I kind of don't have time, but I've got a great photo of a really cute kid in a onesie talking about how much he enjoyed this. Uh, and how engaging he found it, how much he liked to talk to his friends about it, and sort of the opportunity it gave them to talk to other young people in other parts of the country. So we've kind of clearly got some great opportunities for mobile in terms of what it means for politics, how it might change politics. But I'm just going to quickly finish off with some, maybe some pitfalls, just taking the other side of the, of the coin, the other viewpoint for a minute. Um, we can look, for example, at the impact of digital campaigning and the growth in digital campaigning between 2005 and 2010, looking at some data from the British Social Attitude Survey. It kind of reminds us that from an absolute level, conventional campaigning is still much more common than digital, but digital activities were growing, um, up from 13% taking part in a digital activity, campaigning activity in 2005 to 31% in 2010. And what's interesting is that relatively, the digital activities are more interactive. So the top 
conventional things are things like watching a broadcast, getting a leaflet through your door, whereas the top digital things are kind of you going out to a website looking for information um, or you discussing the election with family and friends. So, again, it's an example of the potential and how this is growing, but got to be slightly careful about this. This just sort of shows the figures for... Uh, whether people took part in and received various types of campaigning, broken down by how interested they are in politics. And if you look at what happened between 2005 and 2010, you can see that there was some growth in digital, up from 9 to 21% amongst people who are not interested in politics, but it's still dominated by people who are already interested in politics. So is there a question about, is it really reaching out to the most disengaged? Is it being dominated by people who already have a view and, of course, have got access to online and to smartphones. I mean, we know about the digital divide, but it's important bearing, that, bearing this in mind, particularly for public services, for politicians, um, you know, not maybe less interesting for, for private sector companies, but politicians, public services, we've got to serve the whole population. So what about older groups, lower income groups? Will this work for everybody? And just... Finally, another sort of word of warning, picking up on some of the points that Melanie was making um, before about the type of conversations that we're getting um, online and on mobile and social networking about politics um, and the kind of the, the, if it's already dominated by people who have already got set views, do we get into a bit of a shouting match? Um, some analysis uh, that we've, we've seen done on uh, what's being done, said around social... The, uh, Scottish independence campaign um, in Scotland suggests that you know, it's got a very different debate going on there <laughs> online and by mobile than we see amongst the general public as a whole. So we've got to be aware of that. And we know that that, can, you know, that sort of thing can put people off. Uh, again, there seems to be something missing uh, there. But that kind of punch and judy framing of politics of competitive sports, uh, we know can put people off, can, uh, tends to put uh, women off from engaging in politics in particular. So is that a danger that we need to bear in mind? And just lastly, to, to finish off, one last figure uh, for you. Uh, our poll last week in the Evening Standard suggested that just one in five people trust their MP to tell the truth. Now, it's not particularly new finding, um, but it does suggest that distrust in the political system is quite entrenched. Um, so we've got to, to remember just relying on online engagement and mobile engagement on its own, if we don't think about how well we do it and tackle some of those root issues, won't necessarily give us all the answers. Thank you, Gideon. That was fascinating. Great food for thought. Now, we've got a fascinating panel here. Uh, on my far right is Douglas Carswell, first came into Parliament in 2005, won his seat with a majority of just 920. Uh, it was 12,000 at the following election, uh, and I didn't think that was just, in just a national swing. I think it's rather more than that. Well done, you. Um, his new book, The End of Politics and the Birth of iDemocracy, was published last year. Uh, he says he had a proper job in business before politics, working in commercial television and then fund management, and he first stood for Parliament Brave Man against Tony Blair uh, in 2001. Then Amber Elliott, here on my right, is Deputy Executive Politics Producer at Sky News. Um, before that, she was political editor of Total Politics magazine, where amongst her achievements were persuading Anne Whitcomb to sing along to Bucks Fizz, making Ed Balls confess to crying at Antiques Roadshow, and uh, sampling pie and mash with Ken Livingstone, where he compared Boris to Hitler. 
she's also previously worked for the Sun on Sunday and the House magazine. Uh, on my near left here is Alex Dean, who's head of public affairs at Weber Shandwick, um, and also a common councilman in the City of London. Not quite sure what that means. Is that like a councillor? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, he's a former chief of staff to David Cameron when he was Shadow Secretary of State for Education. And he is public affairs counsel to financial and professional service clients at Weber Shandwick. And finally, Jag Singh, great digital entrepreneur and uh, expert in politics online. Um, he recently co-founded WES, which is focused on reinventing digital politics using big data tools and analysis. Uh, he uh, worked for YouFundMe, which um, provided grassroots fundraising for candidates at the 2010 general election. He's also worked for US presidential candidates Wes Clark, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton. So you're going to be back in uh, the next US presidential I'm, I'm election? I'm out. I'm out. You're out. Okay. Now, I thought what I'd do is talk to each one individually briefly, then open it up to conversation and, of course, to include you lot as well. So I'll, I'll start with Douglas. Um, you do quite a lot of tweeting, don't you? Yes. How, how much do you think politics has changed since the advent of... It's mainly Twitter and Facebook, if we're talking about mobile um, digital world. Massively, um, but it's... it's in the process of, I think, changing beyond recognition. When I was first elected in 2005, if I wanted to get any airtime or, or, or mention in a national newspaper, I had to basically ingratiate myself with the party press office. And if I agreed to be on message, whatever that is, um, they would feed quotes to newspaper journalists. Twitter, blogging, I blog every day. Um, it allows me to say what I want to say and communicate directly, not just to constituents, but feed into the mainstream media. Um, it's been many months since I last spoke to the Tory party press office. You, you, you just don't need that sort of centralised branding and generic way of doing politics anymore. And so you've disintermediated Absolutely. your party. Absolutely. How does your party feel about that? Um, I, I think if all Tory candidates were to disintermediate and to be authentic, we would win by a crushing landslide. I think one of the reasons why people are so fed up with the political system is because they have parrots who recycle cliches and pretend they believe in things that they don't. But it's interesting because people say that what they most like is authentic politicians, yeah. and it's certainly true. I much prefer following politicians on Twitter who say something interesting rather than went to such and such a primary school this morning yeah. and they're wonderful. But... Equally, voters say they don't want to vote for parties that appear divided. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit less sure about that. People in the Westminster Village always tell us that they don't want divided parties, but you know, to what extent was the Conservative Party united in 1983 when it got 42% of the vote? To what extent was it united with the conflict between the wets and the dries in 1987 when it got 40% of the vote? Um, I think what people want in a representative is someone... You know, People don't, I think, look at a, a candidate and think, where are they on the ideological spectrum? They want to know that basically they're, they're, they're on their side, that they're going to do their job, they're going to say what they mean and mean what they say. If, if you try and use Twitter to do messaging the traditional way, where you all have... I mean, the, in the Eastleigh by-election, there was this hilarious episode when a group of Tory MPs got together and thought that what they would do is all tweet the same tweets. <laughs> And they looked ridiculous, and they were trying to make the message um, something to do with the inconsistency of the Liberal candidate. But the story became the inauthenticity of the Tory campaign. You, you just can't do the sort of centralised, spun politics. Um, spin becomes unspun by lunchtime in the age of Twitter. Journalists get countervailing views put to them almost instantly. And the idea that you can get everyone to parrot the same inauthentic cliché, it, it, it's absurd and ridiculous. 
Um, some politicians, I think, understand this, and it's no coincidence that Boris Johnson and George Galloway, um, you know, in, in very different ways, have created their own brand and have been very successful. I suspect at the next election we will see 650 um, contests where the local dynamic and the, the character of the individuals in the contests will never have been stronger. And I think we will get an enormous divergence from the uniform national swing as a consequence. I think this is a good thing, though. But isn't it, isn't it fascinating how you can completely change your reputation through Twitter? I'm thinking, for instance, of the Tory MP, Michael Fabricant, who used to be just an object of derision amongst journalists in the House, mainly because he wears this preposterous blonde wig, uh, has turned out to be a great, authentic and funny yeah. tweeter. Yeah. And I, we've all changed our views of it. I think Twitter shows that even whips can be reformed. He was a former, <laughs> he was a former whip who, um, like whips, it has to toe the party line or whatever it is this week. Um, He's, he's done incredibly well on Twitter. Um, he says things that other people only think, and um, he's wonderfully authentic. And do you know the extraordinary thing about him? He's not just being Tory boy. He's not just going on about tedious politics the whole time. And one of the reasons why I think he's so successful is because, you know, if I lived in Litchfield, I would think, wow, I'm, I'm represented by a nice, decent, sensible person. But m most MPs only have handful of thousands of Twitter followers. Yeah. Uh, so how much difference is that really going to make to you politically, do you think? How many well, people are you reaching? I, I mean, on Twitter I've got 14,000. I don't know how many of them live in Clacton. My blog, however, I have... I mean, I've, I've now been retained by The Telegraph to do three blogs of them a, a week, but um, my own blog, talkcoswell.com, last week was read by about 27, 28,000 people. About one in ten of them, according to Google Analytics, lives in my constituency. It's, it's kind of like having your own mini-newspaper. Um, sometimes people say to me, you know, how can you afford the time to blog every day? How can I afford not to? Um, I, I think at the next election, it would be fascinating to see, but I suspect at the next election, some, some wonderful polling company will produce some analysis that shows there's a correlation between the uh, profile and the footprint people have online, which you can only get by being authentic, and um, how, they do, how they do locally. Um, you know, if, if, you're, you're, if you're going to have that profile online, you can only really have it by being authentic. Um, and it's the ultimate form of quality control. Amber, how have digital media changed your job as a political journalist? Um, massively. I mean, when I first started out in journalism, one of the companies I worked for was also creating websites for MPs, MPs who didn't know how to create their own websites. And now you're an unusual MP if you're not on Twitter. I mean, for broadcasting, it makes life easier because you get in the morning and eight MPs have already told you what they think on a certain subject. But it also makes life slightly harder because people already know what that view is and therefore you're trying to seek out people who have interesting views that aren't necessarily already out there. Um, I think that other things that make my life easier are, you know, we have various apps on mobile phones now that can, you know, for example, I was at the G8 just this morning and you actually were able to record a voice track from my mobile phone that was as high a quality as it would be if I sat in a video in a truck. So things like that will change things for journalists as well and for, and for politicians because they're going to be able to go out and say, OK, I can't come to you for this interview, so how about uh, you just send me this on your mobile phone and I'll, uh, I'll do it by phone. And we're doing more and more of that on Skype as well, definitely. It is also, I mean, it's a fantastic news feed, I find. I mean, I, I don't work from the Palace of Westminster, so I'm not on top of things the whole time. And I used to have this problem that my phone would ring and say, hello, it's Laura here from Newsnight. I wonder whether you might be interested in coming on tonight to talk about William Hague's speech. And I think, what speech? <laughs> I don't get that anymore. I mean, I can, I can look at Twitter and I always know exactly what's going on. That's fantastic. I mean, I suppose because you actually work in Westminster, it's not so much of a problem for you. Yeah, I suppose, as Gideon was saying, one of the things that I think 
we struggle with as a channel and that everyone in politics struggles with is how to reach people, ordinary people, who don't necessarily care that um, David Cameron is going to be speaking, doing a, an oral statement on the G8 today, for example. And you know, how do you make that interesting for a regular audience? And can social media help you do that in any way, shape or form? And even just really easy, simple things like a hashtag you know, can allow people to opt into certain things that they are interested in mm. and find out that, oh, my politician is talking about this. So things like that help as well. And do you get sort of interesting digital feedback from viewers and interaction? Yes, definitely. I think, I think you know, so as a journalist, one of the things you're trying to do is always make what you're saying interesting. And sometimes when you're stood at a live point for 12 hours, it's not that interesting, especially when, you know, all the politicians are half an hour's drive away, for example. But, um, you know, you have to try and think visually. So what would someone like to see? They probably don't know what the inside of a broadcast sort of tent looks like. So you take a picture of that. Or being with Adam Bolton the other day, and we were doing a piece of camera, and he was standing outside the Titanic Museum, but we framed it wrong. And you could see slightly how you might be able to spell a rude word slightly. <laughs> and um, we thought we'd tweet it. He thought it was hilarious. And it got picked up everywhere and was one of the most tweeted things about the G8, apparently. <laughs> so, um, I, think, I think from a viewer's perspective as well, obviously we have paper reviewers and people like yourselves who come on and talk about things. And it does put some people off, you know, because you'll go on Twitter afterwards and you'll get abuse. But I think it's finding a way to do stuff like that where you actually engage with it without it turning into trolling, I suppose. Mm. Good. Alex, I, I don't know whether you want to talk about politics or public affairs in I, this context. I'm happy to talk about either. Um, I suppose I'm quite interested in um, the wider discussion too, because lots of these conferences wind up being about Twitter and Facebook, and that's been a lot of what today's conversation has been. But there's a lot more going on beyond that, and I'm interested in apps, both as they affect public affairs and as they affect politics. So the obvious things people talk about in this space are, you know, wasn't, weren't the London riots organised by BBM, and then weren't the clean-up efforts organised by social media too? Well, sure, but then the, the next wave in that is an app called Suki, which helps protesters work out where the police are so they can avoid being kettled. Now, we, we may applaud such entrepreneurialism, we may decry it, but we, we, we mustn't ignore it. Um, and in that app world, there's a lot happening for real force of good uh, as well in politics. So I, I, I took a look before I, I came out at the site um, of a rival firm of ours, I suppose, called Delib, which does a lot of voter registration work. And apps for voter registration are tremendously useful because it means if you're knocking up, and Douglas and I, in our different capacities, will have spent you know, years on wet Wednesdays going up and down high streets with clipboards and filling I'd things say in. say knocking up is a political <laughs> term in this context. Sorry, you know, I wasn't... <laughs> Touché. Knocking on doors to try and find out which, 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 in which direction people wanted to vote in. It's much, much easier and much more centralised if you can have an app on your own phone so that the party didn't have to buy you a device. You can do it on your own phone where you can trigger someone's voter registration. It may not happen immediately, and it's most obvious in the US context rather than here, but where they can um, have their interaction with the state facilitated in a way they feel more comfortable with. It's not a big, long form, and they can do it face-to-face -face with someone who's volunteered to do it on the doorstep. So you register them via your mobile? You can start that process via okay. the mobile. It doesn't finish there, but it's much better at doing that. 
Now, what we haven't done yet is the, the other things that I think social media and apps can do. So things like flash polling via social media in specific constituencies. I think that's going to be the next wave of changing politics and indeed public affairs too. But you're when not you going can... to get a representative sample if it's self-selecting. Who decides? Well, to that, that's, why, that's why we haven't managed it yet. But there, I, I'm convinced that social media, as it becomes more prevalent, and you know, we've now got a majority of people who are using mobile phones have smartphones rather than old mobile phones. As, it, as that becomes larger and more prevalent, and people get better at sampling, we will be able, however imperfect it is, to do some kind of flash polling in um, not just by-election areas, but in lots of areas. So Douglas could work out what people felt in his constituency on a specific micro-issue. Um, I think that's fascinating too. Good. Jack, what we haven't really talked about is getting the message out to voters and engaging them, which sure. I think the US is well ahead of us on, isn't it? Definitely. Um, I think it starts off with the fact that politicians in, in the UK, you know, uh, Douglas and, and uh, Alex withstanding, um, are generally just don't get technology. So in the US, one of the, um, just going back to the main theme of the conference, mobile, um, in the US there's a big strand of sort of debate about mobile first, which means you develop any website, any app, any idea um, for deployment on a mobile interface first, and then you sort of you know, figure out, well, some apps don't even have a web, web equivalent. Um, in the UK, we're not even digital first, we're still analog. Um, you know, going back to Alex's example, uh, why aren't political parties using apps for canvassers to sort of you know, input data about um, uh, people who are, are supporting them or not supporting them? Exactly. Um, are they not? I thought they were. I no, they no. had huge digital databases nope. of... Well, we had digital databases, but not you ones that... You have to that... feed it in. Exactly. Yeah. And so my firm's actually working with all the political parties, and uh, not to name and shame people like uh, Grant Shapps, but um, a, lot of the a lot of the data that they actually hold about uh, people in their constituencies usually fits, you know, according to mosaic, or you know, experience mosaic sort of codes, which means they're either, they're either, they're either grouped according to their socioeconomics or, or, or you know, uh, some sort of sociocultural sort of status. And, um, for example, in Hammersmith and Fulham, out of the 30,000 people that they have in the database, all of them fit into four different categories. Now, we know for a fact that you can't have just four different categories of people. You know, there are five different political parties that people sort of vote for anyway. Um, so... I think that means that you know we're going to be for the for the I'd say for the foreseeable future, um, which means you know the 2015 election, maybe even the 2020 election, uh, we're going to be far behind the U.S. But that suggests that the one party that actually gets moving on this could have a great edge over the others. You'd think so, but we've actually talked to all the political parties, and you know when we go in and say, look, we've got this idea. In fact, it's not an idea; it's it's a proven concept because we've demoed it and deployed it around the world. It's going to be cheaper, it's going to be faster, it's going to save you money, you're going to be quicker, and you're going to get, you're going to get more information and quality information. They go, no, we'd much prefer to just send leaflets. Really? They do. That's extraordinary. Is that, is micro-targeting as well. You yeah. know, one of the things you can do about someone is not just canvas data information. You're able to sort of say, well, he likes going to the park or she likes going to the library, and therefore you want to aim your <clears throat> campaign material at that person who likes their library. And you but, find ways to sort of engage in it. But the, when I spoke to uh, politicians about this, when I was doing a piece on it, they were saying their problem is that they find the upfront cost of it quite intimidating because they are new systems and, you know, with government worry of IT systems and things like that, that has put a lot of people off. But 
obviously you know more about this than I do. The cost of launching a startup these days is next to nothing. Um, yeah, that's normally a pretty, it's, it's normally an excuse I hear from politicians who just don't understand it or are, usually have some sort of vested interest in the printing company that you know, is printing the leaflets. But is it, is co it a cost can, sorry, no, cost can help to, to propel people to embrace technology. Mm -hmm. So in this, well, I'm elected in this authority, mm -hmm. and as you can see, it's not a modern building, but it is a forward-looking organisation, and it sends its papers um, as a preference on PDF. So it sends them to, to iPads as a preference, or other device, uh, as a preference rather than um, in physical form, because there's a massive cost in sending out dozens and dozens of committee papers. Is it a generational thing, do you think? Is it the fact that the people in charge of political parties on the whole are not of a generation that embraces it? Definitely. Um, well, no, sorry, no, no, it's not a generational thing. It's a, um, it is a partly attributable to generation, uh, the generation gap. Um, there's also a uh, very centralized sort of command and control structure that we have with political parties, mm -hmm. even campaigns, even the you know, Occupy movement had a very sort of command and control structure to it, which um, in the US, for example, if you know, any one of you went up to you know, one of the local state offices in, in, for the Obama campaign or the Romney campaign and said, oh, hi, you know, I'm a public affairs professional or I'm a journalist or I'm a technologist or I'm an entrepreneur, I'd love to help out. Um, they'd say, oh, great, you know, cool. Um, we've got like 20 different tasks for you to do, everything from designing a whole new algorithm to you know, designing a, a leaflet for us. Over here, if, if any of us went up to one of the political parties or campaigns, they'd be like, oh, great, thank you for volunteering. Um, here's a stack of leaflets, please deliver them. Stuff, please. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, um, let's take some questions from the audience. Oh, don't tell me all this. Yes, Julia, thank you. Mike's just on his way. Well, I guess I want to ask, Douglas has got the view on this. I wonder what everyone else's view is. You know, the methods are modernizing, and I think Alex nailed the idea that um, the, you know, it's going to get faster and more inclusive and so on and so forth. But, you know, are politicians going to change? Are they going to get smarter and faster and more in touch? Or is it just the technology that's going to be more connected? Because I think that's the real challenge. Um, sure. Yes. Sure. And political parties fundamentally exist for um, a, a very straightforward reason: to aggregate votes and opinion. That's why we have political parties. Um, in the 20th century, when we had mass communication, radio in the 20s, then television, mass newspapers, there simply wasn't the space for small parties or insurgents or individuals to create their own brand and to communicate locally. You had to have a generic structure and generic parties with generic branding and generic messages. What's extraordinary about the digital revolution is it turns on its head our assumptions about the ability to aggregate votes and opinion. The most extreme and dramatic example of this is the Five Star Movement in Italy, which got one in four votes a few months ago. Now, the Five Star Movement may or may not be with us by the end of this week, who knows? But the things that allow you to aggregate votes and opinion without having a big corporate party structure are here forever now. Um, we, we have started to see examples of how you can um, aggregate votes and opinion in this country without a party structure. And I think it dooms the two-and-a-half party system. Um, already the two-and-a-half party system is losing market share pretty dramatically. Everything the internet touches from book sales to banking to music sales, it allows in new entrants. We're starting to see an, an insurgent friendly environment. The, the, the existential question for the established political order is this. Do we transform ourselves and become open source platforms like the Five Star Movement in Italy, or do we become extinct? It's, it's a simple, straightforward choice. 
Um, a lot of politicians don't realize they're confronted with that choice, but I suspect in the next few years, some of them will, 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 will whether they conscious they're making that decision, realize that they've, they've made it. There are so many things we could do to, you know, my party has been in terminal decline um, for 20 years. Um, we, we, we have halved our membership since David Cameron became party leader, so much the modernization. Eh? It, but it's ridiculous. In the age of the internet, it has never been easier to build a mass membership organization. Why don't, you know, there are a quarter of a million people on Facebook living in this country who describe themselves as a conservative. Why don't we offer them one pound a year membership in return for getting a vote to decide who their candidate at the next election is? You know, there are an extraordinary array of things we could do to revive parties, and, or, or rather to redefine them. Um, the, 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 the problem is, I suspect, we'll have to wait until the insurgents are at the door before we realise that actually we ourselves have to become a platform for insurgency. But we do still have a political system, an electoral system, first past the post, which is very anti-insurgent. I mean, in Italy they have PR, it's much easier. I, um... I, respectfully, I, I think many of those assumptions are turned on their head. We have a two-and-a-half-party system, which means that seven out of ten seats are one-party fiefdoms. Um, Traditionally, you only really stand a chance of losing your seat if you're a sitting MP, if you either lose the right to be the party candidate or if you happen to have the misfortune of living in a marginal seat. The problem is that actually that, those assumptions rest in a day when people couldn't build a brand locally. Um, many associations in Labour and Conservative heartlands are basically hollowed out. They exist in name only as associations. They exist as a fighting force on paper only. Um, we began to see a few months ago an insurgent party come along in those heartlands and do remarkably well. Heaven forbid that these guys in UKIP discover the internet. Um, you know, it is possible to create a brand. You know, in the old days, if you wanted any airtime at all, you had to suck up to a producer in Norwich, in my part of the country. Um, I can now communicate directly with thousands of people in Clacton without talking to a journalist. You know, um, it is going to have some quite remarkable effects, this. And, Many of our assumptions that, you know, oh, the two-party system shuts out, it's precisely because we've got a hollowed-out system, because we've got a two-and-a-half-party system, that I think we're actually going to discover some quite shocking consequences of this. It, it, it really is, I think, going to be quite dramatic. And how is politics at Westminster, actually, in the House of Commons, going to work if you no longer have the sort of top-down mass party structure? Um, I think the idea of collective responsibility um, will, will have, to, have to go. Um, I think the, 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 the fiction that at all times... Was, a group of people can always believe the same things about everything. It, it, it's ridiculous. Um, I think it's going to require um, the whips to, to recognise that as members of the, the legislature, we're accountable first and foremost to our voters, not, not to them. Um, they're beginning to get the message, but, but slowly and painfully. Um, I think it also means that you can have actually a much more participative debate. Quite often when I'm in the chamber now, I'll be tweeting and you know, I know that if I wait for half an hour to catch the speaker's eye to respond to something that someone else said, no one's going to be watching. If I tweet, I'll get a whole load of angry or sometimes happy uh, replies from people. It, it, it brings in the folk outside into the debate in the chamber. It sort of trickles, trickles out. Um, there are all sorts of things we could do, though, to, 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 to really harness this. I mean, you know, it, it makes me really angry when people say that, you know, people are apathetic. And, you know, it's the political system that is monumentally useless. There's a huge number of people out there who actually want to have a say in how this country is governed. We just invented a political system that is, is, is useless. We could harness the digital revolution to actually really revive um, politics and democracy. Um, the biggest barrier, I'm afraid, is the, the, the two-and-a-half-party system in Westminster. And Westminster feels incredibly anachronistic, doesn't it, these days? It felt anachronistic in the 20th century. It felt 19th century. Well, it's now two centuries out of date, yeah, isn't yeah. it? I mean, imagine if we lived in a world where, for example, 
You could join a political party for a pound. That will give you a right to vote to decide who any candidate was to be the parliamentary candidate or the local candidate. Um, you could have open primaries to decide who your candidates were, so everyone got a say over who got to be their next MP. Imagine if you had every day, every week in the House of Commons, a, a, a bill that was voted on um, as a response of people online producing a, a, a popular proposal to be debated and voted on. Imagine if every May Day we had a, 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 a direct democracy, a, a referendum in this country to, to decide a great issue of the day. I mean, you know, we, we could make this thing so exciting, so interesting. Instead, it's dominated by people who are prepared to not have an original thought for 20 years in order to crawl their way up to the top of the ladder. It's ridiculous. It's also about issues. I think the problem is that people don't see political parties as being able to take on an issue on their behalf. So, for example, you know, you take on... Uh, there's a group called Movement for Change, which David Miliband was working on before he left this country. And he basically, as part of it, was going hyper, hyper local. He was going to Lambeth, and they had a big problem with women walking at home in the dark. And he didn't say, if you join the Labour Party, we'll help you sort it out. He said, right, well, let's look at how we can work with the local police. Let's look mm. at how we can work with church organisations, synagogues, mosques, and actually make this better for people. And then we'll go to the local council, and then we'll speak to the politicians. And then by the end of that process, they felt involved. And they're not saying, join the Labour Party, join the Conservative Party, join the Lib Dems. They're saying to them, I know you care about this issue. Maybe in return one day, you might vote for us in the next election. You know? a, a, a further extension of that, sorry to yeah. If I ran a PR lobbying communications company, I would be prepared to just bypass a lot of the Westminster system and just appeal directly to the voters. It, it costs the same to send an email to 650 politicians as it does to communicate with a mass audience. And I think you could build a coalition of support for change on a particular issue far more effectively by doing so directly with the people rather than trying to influence the party system. I think that ultimately the clients in my kind of environment, polluting the air, we're talking about business, but um, clients are still interested in decision-making and the decision-making process and in influencing or attempting to influence or get their message across to those in decision-making positions. And that's still a relatively finite number of people. And the behaviour of those people remain of primary importance and interest to us in this kind of discussion. So I have a slightly different answer to Julia's question. I think that the digital movement does change politicians' behaviour, but some of it's in quite old-fashioned ways, in the kind of attempts to get back to direct democracy, and not quite the sense Douglas means, but in the sort of town hall discussions. Digital empowers politicians to do kind of American 19th century grand hall events. Okay, they're happening online instead of in person, but they're happening like that. So Boris Johnson... A great example. Boris Johnson does a lot of his local policy discussions with the hashtag AskBoris at appointed times and genuinely engages, even with his critics. So Liam Lavery, who tweets that Liam Lavery won, asks, why are you such a freak? Boris answers, mainly genetic. Great engagement, engages directly with his critics and turns a, a negative into a positive. So that's, a, that's one of the crowdsourcing ideas. Uh, you're both... Um, working out where police are and so forth in a crowdsourcing sense, but also crowdsourcing discussion. But the other way that ch changes things, to my mind, from Julia's question, is in crowdfunding. And this is something we haven't really touched on so far, but the ability to um, pay for things or to raise funds for things online fundamentally, in my view, changes the nature of the political system. It, the mayor, as you all know, George Ferguson is the mayor of Bristol, and he crowdfunds his local charities via his website. So he goes onto his website and invites people, if they want to, to select charities that they would like to support, and then he's got a small pot of money, but then to top it up. And most people who do select a charity to support naturally top it up a bit themselves, because they've indicated they're interested. Now, why am I so interested in that kind of idea, and why do I think that free marketeers and, and small status should be interested in it too? 
because it's people who volunteered their time, people who chose to commit that money, rather than the state coercing you into paying for something, and the state saying, I'm going to pay for this whether you want to, want to or not. Individuals, invited by the political system, have elected themselves, chosen to put their hand in their pocket, and paid for something. Now, we had some great presentations before on the health um, system. It doesn't, not just health, where that, that weight off the, the statist structure can be delivered. It's right across the political environment, where you can voluntarily say, I'll take on the burden of paying for that myself. I choose to pay for that. That's a much better relationship between the individual and the state, and the digital system has empowered it. Thanks. Jack? Uh, no, I've got nothing to add. Douglas and Alex and Amber. They've done pretty well. They've done pretty well. <laughs> okay, let's have another question. Yes, sort of building on um, Julia's question, I noticed that all the answers, although we're talking about doing away with top-down, they are actually top-down answers. They're about bringing in data and understanding it. They're about responding to what somebody is, is tweeting at you or sending you as a complaint. What I'm not getting is any sense of how politics on the move changes the experience and the engagement of those who want to do more than complain. Um, what I want to know is, as a woman who would fall into Gideon's uh, presentation, who is put off by barrack room politics, uh, who finds it all a bit patriarchal, and even with digital, it, it feels quite male. Everything feels as if it's about collection of data and statistics. It doesn't feel particularly uh, interactive, except in 140 characters. Um, what is there coming up uh, digitally that will help women engage better with the process, not in terms of talking to councillors, but actually in terms of joining parties and getting actively involved. So in other words, we're not bottom feeders feeding you, but we are actually bottom feeders climbing up and becoming you. What is there digitally that enables that to happen? Nothing, simple answer. Uh, for the sole reason that um, one of the other problems we have is that the Westminster sort of you know, the boogeyman um, relies a lot on the media um, to sort of you know, shore up its ability to do anything. Um, and I mean, we saw this in, in you know, Gordon Brown sort of last year, where he actively went out and, and talked to people like me and, and you know, loads of others and said, right, I want to actually bypass the media bubble. I want, to, I want to be able to talk directly. The problem is when you put Gordon Brown on YouTube, you know, <laughs> it's always a disaster. So. Um, but just going back to your question, um, you know, a lot of the traditional political tools, you know, fundraising, uh, uh, you know, sending out petitions, uh, emailing your MP, a lot of those tools have digital equivalents. They don't really have mobile equivalents. Um, and it's a space that's ripe for growth. There's, there's, there are loads of opportunities. The trouble is, um, so I'd, I'd, I'd theorize that there are three things, um, three areas of growth in the mobile world. There's disruption, where you know, uh, protesters disrupt an action or a, an, an event. Um, the problem is they need the media to get that message out. There's sort of information sort of distribution. Again, the media is, is you know, we have the BBC, the, the brilliant BBC, we have the brilliant Daily Mail, we have the brilliant The Guardian. Um, people trust those newspapers a lot more than they do individual tweeters. Um, and then finally, we have you know, the entire system, which is uh, there, are loads of, there are loads of people trying to build new systems. You know, the WikiLeaks, um, Identica, which is actually a competitor to Twitter, but it's more open source and a little bit more private. Um, you know, uh, Path, which is like Instagram, but only limits you to 50 friends, for example. 
There are loads of those sorts of tools, but again, we rely so much on the media for you know, the top 10 apps that you sort of uh, download on your phone. Are probably, you probably have them on your phone because they were on some top 10 list covered on the BBC Click or covered on you know, some newspaper that you read. Um, so until we sort of remove that reliance on you know, these, people like Amber are, are brilliant curators of opinion, uh, comment, but unless we re remove our reliance on people like, uh, on journalism and media especially, uh, we're never gonna get to that sort of utopia. Thanks. Uh, yes, question here in the front. Isn't the key problem more individuality? Now with the advent of social networks, people have the advantage of being themselves. And when it comes to political parties, there may be things that, you know, they agree with the majority of a manifesto, but they don't necessarily agree with, you know, some small things. In addition to that, you know, it doesn't matter how much information you gather, that lady that goes to the park that wants to be involved might be in the same party as somebody who likes to go clubbing. Um, so, isn't it, I mean, what's the fear now that actually the individuality of the person is going to break down a party, is going to break down, and can we, well, I suppose we, we are, and we, we should see more of a, uh, a power return back to local governments rather than having everything centralised as that top-down thing again, because we're individuals, we have our voices, and we can, we can do that now, and shouldn't political parties be looking at us as individuals? I think these two questions are actually connected. Now, I was interested in the question before as well as in, in yours. On the one hand, we've got a real problem in, in um, internet activism where people think their declaration of interest, clicking like on something or retweeting an, an objection to something, is it. That's enough. You know, clicktivism is the new kind of activity. I just have to click to show that I'm interested, or slacktivism, I suppose you might call it. You know, just, just declaring that you have an interest in something, that's all that I need to do. And I don't need to go out and volunteer for something. I don't need to, to raise any money, or I don't need to contribute any positive idea. My declaration of my emotion is enough of a um, participation. So on the one hand, there's that negativity. But on the other hand, it, with both of these questions, I'm kind of more positive, I think, than the, the suggestion from both of you, the, the vibe that I get from both of you, because I think that the digital environment is one that lets the state and lets state institutions learn from the rest of the community. So New York City Council has a Kickstarter page. It has a page where you can go and contribute to ideas that you think are worth supporting in low-income neighbourhoods. Now, it doesn't have to be women. It could be people of different minorities. It could be people from different communities, different neighbourhoods. Whichever way you want to slice up a, a, an organisation or community, once you've got ability to volunteer your issue onto a, a page like that, onto a facility like that, which re semi-requires authorities to take and pay attention, it's no longer top-down. You can genuinely have digital as a bottom-up institution but if where the authority, people can start ideas. But if the authority, if the, if the parties and kind of aligned, if you haven't got the same thread running through, then some, you know, and a, a constituency might want something completely different in the north than a constituency in the south, but they're part of the same party. So it doesn't really work like that, does it? Um, one of the things that will happen in the digital age and is starting is what, what in my book I refer to as hyper-personalisation. This doesn't just mean, for example, that instead of a national curriculum, you'll have a personalised curriculum tailor-made for every child. Um, you will see hyper-personalisation in, in politics. You're beginning to see the long tail in politics. That means candidates um, and uh, uh, branches of political parties in different parts of the country will be more niche, more distinctive, more particular, and more, more local. Um, ab ab absolutely, that, that, that's a good thing, and I think it's inevitable. Um, it will be a challenge if you're a centralising party whip, but for the rest of us, who cares? Um, I think we will be better served by our political system when this happens. Personalisation, and I speak as a libertarian, I think is a thoroughly good thing. Um, 
I, I do think that the, the um, lady who asked the question before you raises, and can I just briefly yeah. touch on it? And then I'm going to have to wind up. There, there is this assumption that um, digital media and uh, social media means that you know uh, politics is. Uh, politicians tweeting each other in angry ways um, and it's appealing to a small, tiny number of people who've got fixed opinions and who've got set views. I, I, I think that's absolutely wrong. Twitter can be shouty if you're a shouty sort of person. On Twitter, you get the news you deserve. I, um, I, I don't want to sound um, boastful, but um, in, in my constituency, party membership has increased by 59% in two years. And it's increased not by um, being Tory boy online, but by tweeting and engaging and blogging and, and, and talking to people online about a whole load of stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with party politics as we understand it. And then once I've got a critical mass of people online, having an offline meetup, £10 a head fish and chip supper, the hall is absolutely packed. The best evening we had, we had 38 people, 38 new people sign up and join the party that evening. Um, if done right, actually online is reviving traditional type grassroots politics. If someone tells you in Westminster that it's all shouty angry people shouty angry back at them in uh, 140 characters, yeah. then that probably reflects what sort of person they are. Well, that's a very cheering note to end on. Thank you. Uh, the good news is that, that it's now time for lunch. But many thanks to Douglas, to Amber, to Alex, to Jag and to Gideon. And thank you all for listening. Well, sure.